Okay, good morning, ladies. Can you bow with me? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, by your sovereign will, you have brought us here together today to study your word. And I pray that not one lady will leave without all that you intend for them today. Be with us today, Lord, be our teacher. Fill this room with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, let's try and make sense of James chapter 4. I found this lesson, again, to be quite convicting. I don't know how everybody else felt about it, but um, the Lord did a work in me this week. So all of us have encountered conflict. Conflict is a fact of life. And um, I dare say that when you read this question that James poses at the very beginning, he's very good at these penetrating questions, is he not? Where do wars and fights come from among you? Well, my mind instantaneously brought up a conflict that is several years old in my life but that I still carry a scar from. And also my mind instantaneously answered that question. It wasn't me, it was them. I think that is a, a reflex that we, it's the default reflex that our minds go to, our hearts go to. And this is part of the problem in conflicts. Any two individuals have the potential for conflict. And James tells us that conflict doesn't come because the other person was too demanding or the other person wasn't patient enough. Conflicts come from within. And we all carry that potential within us. We have desires in our hearts that are unmet and it creates conflict in our heart. And then that conflict manifests itself between us and in our relationships if we are not careful and we don't know what to do with those desires. But James tells us the issue is not everybody else but us. The problem is not out there, it is in us. Conflict comes because our own selfish desires are not being met. It is from these desires, which James calls evil desires, because they're selfish. We are the center. They come out of our own hearts. And, out, and in James 1, we already learned that out of the evil desires of our heart is where temptations come. So he's already dealt with our hearts and he's continuing to expose to us what is actually in our hearts. So to understand conflict, we need to understand the desires from which they come, the desires within us that are being frustrated, the desire for status, the desire to get even, 
the, the desire for recognition. All of us have something that we could probably identify. Underlying all these desires is self. They are selfish and it's a lack of proper thinking about God. Christians who allow these desires to erupt with conflict. We can have little scrimmages, but if we harbor this, it erupts into major conflicts. And when that enters our church, we are forgetting God's grace to us. You do not have, it says, because you do not ask. Where are we to take these desires that we have? We are to take them to the Lord. If we have desires that are unmet, we need to meet with the Lord about that. And so we do not have because we do not ask. It shows a sign of prayerlessness in these believers. And we can also, sometimes our prayer life can become dry and um, hardly existent. And this is a sign of trying to run things on our own, under our own authority. It arises from a sense of independence from God instead of a dependence on him. So instead of praying about our desires, we indulge them. Rather than trusting in the Father who delights in giving his children good gifts from above, we ourselves decide what is good and ask and seek to gain it through our own efforts. This is where the problem begins. We also see in this group of believers this misunderstanding of what prayer is for. And it's an easy misunderstanding to fall into, we often do ourselves. And their prayers were used to get things for their own selfish desires. And it says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. They forget that God is pure. It says in Habakkuk that his eyes are too pure to even look on evil. And yet we take these desires of self expecting that he is going to meet us and fill those. It is a wrong understanding of what prayer is for. When Jesus taught his disciples to, to pray in the, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, the first concerns that Jesus taught his disciples to bring up before God were God's concerns. His name, his kingdom, his will, before our own. Our concerns of provision, of pardon, of protection, those come, but they come after God's concerns. Part of the point of prayer is to remind ourselves of what God wants from us, what he wants, and is to align ourselves with his priorities and his purpose. It is the grace and goodness of God 
that moves us to not just pray, but to pray with motivations that are honoring to him. This comes from God's grace and his goodness. And these believers couldn't see that. They forgot about God's grace and misunderstood his goodness. Our selfish desires not only lead to conflict with each other, but they also lead to conflict with God. He is opposed to the proud. Our selfishness causes us to be spiritually unfaithful to God, James tells us. We are adulteresses. And in the original, that term was definitely adulterous. It is female because we are the bride of Christ. He is our bridegroom. When we let our desires rule us, we push God from his rightful place. And we figuratively climb back onto that throne. James calls this adultery. And God takes it personally. We are the bride of Christ. We belong to him. He is jealous for us. Now, our problem comes from our own human envy. But envy is not the same as jealousy. Envy is how you feel about the possessions of other people. But because God owns everything, God is not capable of envy. Jealousy is how you feel about your own possessions. If I was out and I saw my friend and her new husband and I thought, oh, her husband is so wonderful. He's better than my husband. I would be envious of her husband. But if someone came along and enticed my husband away from me, I would be jealous for my husband. So there's a difference between envy and jealous. And God is jealous for his possessions. He is jealous for his people. James tells his readers and us that it is time for those who have been captured by the values and priorities of the world to come back to God. He is jealous. It is like if the husband came home and found his wife cavorting with her ex-boyfriend who had abused her and the relationship that he had saved her from. That's what God sees when he sees us cavorting with the world. He is jealous because he wants us to come back into relationship with him because that's what's best for us. His is always for our best. But James calls us back. He calls us back to the Lord. And wonderfully, God takes us back. We cheat on him and God takes us back. The word says he gives more grace. I love that line. He wants his people back. And amazingly, God will take us back. God, we must make a choice. Will love of self draw me from God? Or will love of God draw me from myself? That is the choice we make every day. Will we invite God's opposition 
or will we receive God's grace? There is no third option. James said, if you're friends with the world, you're an enemy of God. There's only two choices. We cannot pursue both. What goes on in our hearts affects our relationship with God and with others. We need his grace, and wonderfully, he gives it. God's grace prompts repentance. It prompts repentance in his people. Repentance is a heart change that will lead to transformed behavior. So the cure for all the discord and all mm, the slandering and relationships that go awry in the church, the cure James also gives us. And he starts out by saying, submit yourselves to God. Submitting to God is yielding to him and recognizing his just and rightful rule over us. We must submit our desires to him and give them over to him. Proverbs says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, which I read to mean he doesn't give me everything I want, but he will help shape the desires that I do want, right? So delight, the, the answer to our heart is to submit to the Lord and delight ourselves in him. And he will change the desires of our heart. It's not easy to do. It's not complicated to comprehend, but it's not easy to do because the desires by definition are deeply rooted in our hearts. And to, we cannot do that on our own is, is change our desires. We cannot uproot those. Only God can do that. And it's a process and sometimes it's painful, but we trust him, we submit to him. James gives us three things we can do. And with each one of these things we initiate, there is a response, there is a promise within these initiatives. We resist the devil and he will flee. So our initiative is to resist. The reaction is he will flee. It's a promise. You resist the devil and he will flee. What does that look like to resist the devil? To resist the devil means to turn to God, to do it God's way. We are also promised that if we draw near to God, that's our initiative, he will draw near to us. That's the response that we are promised. It will happen every time. It's like the prodigal son. The father stood and waited for him to turn. The minute he's far off on the horizon, the father ran to him before the son could get the confession of his repentance out. The father was hugging him. God promises to restore us when we turn and when we draw near to him. We humble ourselves and God will lift us up. We must be aware of the devil's schemes, but we must not be afraid. We are to be aware that he is a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour. Because if we put our head in the sand, it might diminish the sound of the roars, but it will not 
help you to not be eaten by the lion, correct? So we need to be aware of him and his schemes and how he operates, but we do not need to be afraid. God has told us how to deal with him. God has dealt with him. God is sovereign. And to resist him is to turn toward God. And turning toward God is also turning from sin. Our scripture in James says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Repentance involves both hands and heart, both actions and attitude, both behavior and mindset. I had a son who all the time, his attitude, well, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. This is not repentance. Obedience is not equal to submission. We can obey and not be submitted. We must submit to God, which means we acknowledge and recognize his rightful place to rule over us. He's our God, he's our Lord. And repentance must involve both because it is with both that we stray. It is with both our heart and our hands that we sin against God. So both must be involved in repentance and submission. So what does this turn from sin look like? James gives us a picture. He says, grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Our sin should grieve us. It is not something trivial that God can just sweep under the carpet. It costs no less than the blood of our Savior. The cross that stands at the heart of our faith is a testament to the fact that sin is deserving of God's wrath. A wrath that we saw the Son willing to bear and suffer under on our behalf. We must never forget that about sin. The more we understand this, the deeper our sense of grief will be over our sins. Sin should be something we mourn. It is right to weep over sin. We must never forget what it costs our Savior to rescue us from it. And it is only as we recognize who we are, sinners, and grieve over that truth that we discover what it means for God to draw near to us. Godly grief over our sin is where our repentance must begin. But it is not where God leaves us. God humbles us not to keep us down, but to lift us up. It is the contrite heart that God esteems. The lower we are, the more lifted we are. And mourning now gives way to the joy of our salvation. And after our relationship with God is put right, we are now able 
to work on our relationship with each other. And James tells us not to slander or to speak evil of one another. Remember, our tongues are untamed and are in our own strength untamable. We need the Lord. James shows us that to speak against each other is to speak against the law. The law calls on us to love our brother as ourselves and not to judge them or to trample all over them for our own selfish desires. When we do so, we exempt ourselves from God's law that we are excluded from his obligations, from this obligation to him. We set in judgment over it, deciding if and when and how it comes into effect in our lives. We take authority that we do not have over this law. God is the lawmaker and the lawgiver. We cannot slander the law without slandering God. How we treat others reflects our view of who God is. He is the only one who can judge justly and who can save and destroy, not us. So our behavior towards others is determined by him, by his law, not by our own desires and wants. True submission to God humbles us. It reminds us of who we are and who we're not. Because essential to knowing who we are is knowing whose we are. Now James moves on to a totally different subject but still involves our hearts and our pride about planning. And in our busyness and planning, there is a danger he warns us of. That danger that we adopt an attitude that this, and this is ungodly. In fact, it is arrogant, um, James says. To avoid this, James says we need two things to get two things right. Our view of the future and our view of ourselves. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. We know what will happen, where we'll be in a million years. God, it's in God's hand, and he's told us that. But we don't know where we will be tomorrow. We will also be in God's hands, but he has chosen not to tell us that. No one knows what tomorrow will bring. And we have to remember that. Our life is like a vapor. We are here for just a little while, and then we are gone. I shared yesterday in Leaders, I read one pastor that was talking about this section of scripture, asked his congregation if anyone could remember the first name of their great-grandfather, and not very many could. Someone who was just here a couple decades ago and whose blood curses through your veins and is already forgotten. We are not here very long, and life will go on without us. We need to remember that. It helps our perspective. And remember, too, a man knows not his time. James is warning us against planning that does not acknowledge the Lord's sovereign right to override our plans. We are not in ultimate control. And 
that all we plan and conceive is subject to the will of God. He is sovereign, and all we do is in his hands. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps, we are told in Proverbs. I am not the master of my destiny. I am not the captain of my soul. My life is not the unchanging center of the universe. I am like a fleeting mist, and I am not in control of the wind, nor when I will vanish. A perspective we need to keep when we are making plans. And so ladies, I leave you with that, and I pray the Lord will bless you with this word. Let me pray you out. Father, we just thank you for your word, and we give you all the glory, Lord. Have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.